Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post, and I'm coming to you today from San Francisco. Uh, it's early Monday morning, uh, East Coast time, uh, posting a conversation that I had with the great Casey Johnson from the Chicago Tribune on Friday afternoon. Uh, Casey has covered the Chicago Bulls for a long time now, close to two decades. Uh, I jokingly call him Grandpa Casey because one time we were, when I was in my old job covering the Brooklyn Nets, we were in going into a press conference to hear Tom Thibodeau talk, and he he wanted to know what the blue check mark on Twitter was, and he couldn't understand what it was. So uh, Casey is one of the best in the business and is a very good friend. And uh, the reason I had him on was because he has covered the Bulls since Jerry Krause uh, was the general manager. Um, Casey has been there throughout the entire, you know, John Paxson and Gar Foreman administration, which goes back all the way to 2003 when Jerry stepped down as general manager, um, you know, after his 18-year run himself, uh, running the team throughout the entire uh, Michael Jordan dynasty. Um, and Casey wrote a bunch of just incredible pieces over the last week and over the last few years, um, kind of telling people about the version of um, Jerry Krause that, that they didn't get to see. Uh, when Krause, who's a very secretive person, as we talk about on the podcast, um, you know, was he, you know, didn't really let people in and didn't really let people see what was going on. And in some some cases, that really worked for the Bulls. I mean, he got Tony Kukoc uh, in the second round of the draft. He got Scottie Pippen out of Central Arkansas. There were other moves he made that was he was able to, you know, kind of secretly get done and, and not let anybody find out about. But it also uh, led to him, you know, making enemies a little easily and, uh, you know, made for some tumultuous times in Chicago, even though he was a native son, as Casey talks about, and, and brought six championships to the city. So um, it's a really interesting listen, I think. Casey knows Jerry as well as anybody, you know, who's covering basketball, you know, now or in the past. And I think really kind of gives a lot of insight into what his, what his life was like. So um, I hope you enjoy that. And we also get into some talk about this year's team towards the end of the podcast, uh, talk about the future of Jimmy Butler, um, the future of Dwayne Wade, uh, the, the future of Fred Hoiberg and Gar Pack, Gar um, Gar Foreman and John Paxson, uh, the coach and general manager of the team. Uh, it should be, I think it's a good listen on the Bulls and you guys will enjoy it. Um, but before we get to uh, the conversation I had with KC, I just want to tell everybody, uh, by the time you're listening to this, the first uh, edition of the Monday Morning Post-Up, my newsletter coming out under the Washington Post umbrella, uh, will have already you know been released, uh, presumably. I mean, unless you're hearing this very early in the morning on Monday. Um, but I'm really excited about this. Uh, I've been doing a newsletter for a while, but now it's going to be under, uh, under, under the Washington Post auspices. It's, it's totally rebranded. It looks awesome. Um, I think we're going to be able to do a lot of cool stuff with it going forward. Possibility of doing some daily stuff during the playoffs uh, with my thoughts on what's happening around the league as, as the playoffs get going, especially in the first round when there's stuff going on every night. Um, I think it could be a really fun read. Um, really hope that, that it can become a big thing. I'm open to hearing uh, whatever anybody has in terms of thoughts on it. Uh, if you email me at timbontemps at washpost.com, uh, would love to hear any thoughts on what you want to see in it, what you want changed in it, what you like, what you don't like. Um, really hope it could be a cool thing. Um, and if you, if, you would, if you would sign up for it, uh, the, the link to it is wapo.st slash postupnewsletter. Uh, it's wapo.st slash postup newsletter. Um, so give it a subscription. Check it out. It's going to be in your inbox every Monday morning by 8 o'clock probably, maybe a little earlier. Um, but probably right around 8 in the morning you'll get it. Um, get right when you get to work. You can pop it open and, and check it out. Um, uh, it's going to have all my work from the prior week. It's going to have 
uh, work that I've noticed from around the league that I think is good. So maybe some college stuff, maybe some high school stuff, whatever other basketball stuff I see uh, that people want to read. Um, we'll have linked to podcasts in it. We'll have a, a, you know, an original column at the top on some topic. Uh, this week is going to be on Devin Booker's 70-point game the other night on some of the interesting reactions to that. Um, but it, I think it's going to be something that, that people are really going to like. And my hope is that it can, it can grow into something big and, and be you know, a nice addition to what we're doing here covering the NBA at the Washington Post. So again, one more time, it's wapo.st slash newsletter. That's wapo.st slash newsletter. And with that, let's get to our conversation with Casey Johnson. All right, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. I know it's been a busy week for you. Um, obviously, the person who broke the news the other day that uh, Jerry Krause, the guy that put together the Bulls dynasty, had passed away um, after a long battle with a bunch of illnesses. And I, I, I think, you know, Jerry had a, a pretty conflicted history with the media in general, but I found it kind of interesting that it really seems like over the last decade or so since he um, – stepped away from the Bulls. You you've developed a really you developed a really close relationship with him, which seemed to be kind of a rarity among media people. So I, I guess as a guy who's from the Chicago area and kind of has been around that scene for such a long time, I was just curious what kind of how your impressions of him have changed over the last couple of decades as you've gotten a chance to know him better and, and history's kind of had a chance to give some space between his time with the Bulls and, and now. Right, um, and it should be pointed out that some of those adversarial relationships were with me when I was a part of the media. So right. obviously, obviously, um, he was in a different role uh, when our friendship formed. Uh, he left the Bulls in uh, April of 2003, uh, succeeded by John Paxson, and yeah, over the last 14 years, as Jerry uh, moved back into a more behind-the-scenes baseball role, and also. Um, the later stages of his life, he became uh, a very reflective and sentimental uh, person to more people because he was always that way, even in the throes of the dynasty and the, you know, the dynasty imploding and, and some of the, uh, the battles with the media. He was always that way behind the scenes with the people that knew him the best. But he started to show that uh, to more people as he aged uh, through life, and uh, just kind of naturally and organically, one of those one of those people was me. Yeah, and you you know you you've had a really you know unique run with that because you like you said you started covering the Bulls you know towards the end of that the the dynasty period, and you went through the the down period in the middle, which began you know was kind of the end of. Jerry's time there. What what was what was you know everybody you know has read this week whether in your great work looking back on his life or you know in that of others that you know he was kind of a secretive guy and um, you know he had the nickname the sleuth in, in terms of you know for his you know his willingness to try to do whatever it could to keep you know people from finding out what was going on. What what was that like uh, from a journalistic standpoint? You know trying to cover him in those last few years of his uh, of his tenure. Well, I used to joke that, uh, and I said this to Jerry many times, he had a truly uncanny ability to uh, to return every one of your calls, uh, answer pretty much every one of your questions, talk to you for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then you'd hang up the phone and you look at your notes and you had absolutely not one thing you could use. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was a special ability and special quality. I, I, don't, I don't quite know how he did it, actually. But uh, he was very secretive, and he did um, – really look at the media as the enemy because 
his entire goal, his entire focus was always about just making the Bulls the best they could be. And he felt that anything trying to impede that, and he viewed the media trying to figure out what he was doing as an impediment. Um, he viewed as anything, you know, the, impeding that as, as, as an obstacle or an enemy. And so for a lot of the time, the media, uh, particularly in the rebuilding era, was, was the enemy. But, um, you know, he cared deeply for, for the Bulls and, and the franchise, and he also very, very much cared for the city of Chicago. He was a hometown boy, uh, raised here, hometown boy, raised by immigrant parents, working class parents, took great pride in being from here and rising to the to the heights that he did. Well, and that was what, you know, you wrote a couple of, of brilliant pieces in the past about him as well as your obit this week. And you, like, that was the thing that really shone through for me in reading about him because, you know, you, you just – you could see how much it meant to him that he got to have this run as, you know, the guy who helped bring championships to Chicago. I mean, you could just tell it was, it was very open. It was pretty, he was pretty, it was pretty open and easy to see how, how much it meant to him that he was able to do that there. And I'm sure it meant far more to him that he could do that with the Bulls than if he'd been doing it for any other team anywhere else. No question, Tim. And, and what the one thing that was kind of, um, hard for him or, or hard for people that knew him was that it, that that really that element wasn't really celebrated um because he was such a polarizing figure you know chicago usually really embraces its own and really kind of embraces hard work and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and making something of yourself and that's exactly what jerry did but jerry and you know jerry we're all we're all flawed human beings and, and jerry had his flaws as well but and jerry brought a little bit of, the, of, of this upon himself because he did have a little bit of inferiority complex and he did um kind of want to be one of the guys and you know that's where the the locker room would would use that and turn that against him because you know you can't be one of the guys when you're the general manager um and you know so jerry brought a little bit of, about, about that uh, of that upon himself but i always found it really jarring to see that that contrast in that chicago like i said usually embraces local success stories embraces those who have you know risen up from from little means to to a prominent uh, role of success, and and it just never quite fully resonated that way for for Jerry during his prime. It, it came on a little bit more down the stretch, and you know Adrian Wojnarowski's been a, a huge champion for him on a national level over the past several years, and that that meant a lot to uh, to uh, Jerry as well. Um, so it, it did kind of come a little bit down the stretch here, but it, it certainly was not a powerful uh, dynamic during during the height of the success. Well, and, and you mentioned kind of a big reason for that, right? Which was the the battles he had with with Michael Jordan and and to and to a degree later Phil Jackson. And you know, it it, it is kind of interesting. You you know, you talk about the the kind of the secret nature with which he did a lot of the stuff that he did, and you know, obviously that paid off with the way they were able to get Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant, some of the other moves they were able to make. But it also you know it alienated Jordan when. He didn't find out Charles Oakley got traded until they were on a plane to Vegas together and like saw it on the news. And, you know, there, there, there were, you know, those issues with, with Phil and Michael and it, it clearly, you know, clearly over time, if you're going to have a, a, you know, some kind of a protracted media battle with, you know, probably the greatest player of all time and the greatest coach of all time, you know, you're, you're probably gonna, you're probably going to lose out if you're the overweight, you know, frumpy general manager, that's kind of a secretive behind the scenes guy. 
bingo, bingo. You're never going to win that battle on a public, uh, public in a public forum. And and look, Michael also never fully forgave. Um, well, I shouldn't say never fully forgave, but he he always always it always burned him and and chafed at him that Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf um, found doctors in his second season that basically said, look, you know, if you try to come back from this broken bone in your foot, there's a 10% chance um, that if you break it again, your career is over. And, you know, Michael's a gambler. He's like 90% odds out. I'll take that right. any day of the week. So, right. so, but, 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 you know, Krause and Reinsdorf, to their credit, saw, you know, possibly a once in a generation type talent and just, they couldn't, they couldn't allow themselves to, to clear him and then only slowly did down the stretch of that, that second season. And, uh, you know, Michael, you know, later, I think, said something to Jerry Reinsdorf saying, you know, I kind of get why you guys did that. But he was furious at the time. Jerry Krause even, like, um, <clears throat> recorded one conversation uh, with the doctors present that Michael didn't know that he was tape recording, and Michael was very, very upset by that. And, he, yeah, so Jerry kind of became an easy target over the years. And, again, you know, he brought some of it upon himself, but I think you nail it perfectly, Tim, when you say that, you know, Phil and Michael and Scotty and, and dashing, you know, successful athletic people like that, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to win that public battle. No, no, you're not. Um, but it, but to, your, to, to kind of wrap a bow up on this before we move on to the, the current team, do you, do you feel like over the past, you know, decade or so, some of that polarization has kind of washed away or do you think that, you know, in Chicago, even for all the success that he had, even, um, even even though the, he is from there and kind of has a pretty remarkable story, you know, between switching sports and coming up with the White Sox and, you know, going and turning the Bulls into champions, do you think that he might just quite never get the um, quite never get the respect there that maybe you would have expected he would? I think it's I, th- I do think it's gotten uh, better down the stretch. It did get better down the stretch of his life, and I've certainly you know just seen nothing but you know a nice nice send off and a nice outpouring since his passing. And then you know I, I mentioned this um, I mentioned one of these two anecdotes I'll say uh, in the obituary. But you know when when Phil Jackson got the Knicks presidency of uh, in May of 2014, he he brought up Jerry Krause in unsolicited fashion. Yep. Uh, at his inter- introductory news conference and talked about how that would be a, you know, a good model to emulate. And, you know, that's Phil's, you know, uh, kind of quirky way of complimenting Jerry. Um, no, no question. And then also, I don't know if Michael ever said this to Jerry Krause directly. I don't think that he did, but he did tell Jerry Reinsdorf at one of the board of governors meeting one time, you know, this, this, this team building thing is, is harder than it, than it looks. And, and, you know, basically that, <laughs> Basically, that was like his, you know, little nod or, or shout out to uh, to Jerry Krause. And even look, even Michael's unbelievably awesome. I, I may be in the minority there, but unbelievably awesome Hall of Fame speech. Some people were bothered by it. I loved it. Um, you know, he he he, he kind of tweaked Krause, but he also he called him a competitor in, in that right, speech. Right, which, which it, for it, Michael it, is as high of a compliment as you can give somebody. Bingo. So you know, I, I do think. I don't think I, I know that Phil and Michael recognized that Jerry was good at his job. I mean, you know, obviously you can, you can parse out the credit however you want, but Jerry Krause had certainly a big part of the credit of that dynasty. There's no question about that. Yeah, no, no question at all. And and I guess speaking of the hall of fame, probably the final thing we should say is, do you, do you think that he will get into the hall of fame this year? And, and do you, what do you think has been the biggest, hang up in what seems like a pretty obvious candidacy. Is it, is it mostly come down to the fact that 
the Hall of Fame is a pretty famously political organization, and the way he kind of publicly reamed them out for not getting text winner and sooner has kind of led to him having to wait longer than it should have. Yes, those two two exact reasons, and I'm glad you brought the text one because I think that did actually play a big part of it for several years. Uh, that I think has faded, and now I think it's just a matter of time. I don't know whether it'll be this year uh, or in the next year or so. This year makes sense, but it'll also to me be pretty 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 hollow and not hollow, but it'll 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 have a very weird feel to it if it happens in a week or two here because you know he came so close to seeing it and he so desperately wanted it not only for himself and his family, but also just kind of to symbolize, you know, all the scouts out there because he really considered himself a scout at heart, not a general manager. And, and it, to, to him, it had universal uh, appeal and impact as to him getting in, what that would mean for all the guys bird dogging out there all across, all across the country. Yeah, that was the, that was the cool thing. I mean, I, I you mentioned Adrian, I, I thought his podcast with Jerry a couple months ago was, was tremendous. And there, there was a lot of stuff that I just didn't know, you know, I'm a basketball fan from when I was a kid, but I, I didn't know that, you know, Krause has this, had this incredible career going back and forth between sports, which is just, you know, completely unheard of now. And it was it was pretty neat to hear him talk about, uh, you know, scouting like that and, and the, the way you go about finding players and, and building building organizations in either sport like that. It was a just a very fascinating uh, career that he had. Yeah, and you could hear the excitement in his voice uh, even then talking about scouting. I mean, I heard that conversation. I had that conversation with him, you know, many times over the years. And just uh, actually one of the one of the big pieces I reported for the Tri- Tribune late in his life um, in uh, July of 2012, I actually spent about five days out on the East Coast with him going to all these minor league baseball That's awesome games. Story. Just, to, just to see his excitement going in these parks. He's in his early 70s at the time. And just to right. see his excitement going in these parks and – setting up and watching players and then going out to dinner afterward and, and breaking it down. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, if I'm that excited about anything when I'm 72, I'll be happy. You know? so. I mean, you're barely, you're barely excited about anything now. Let alone that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. W- wonderful life. Wonderful life. No, he, yeah, he was, he was pretty fascinating. We'll, we'll transition to a, a less glamorous topic for a few minutes on the, the current state of the, uh, of the bulls who have, have kind of gone back to where uh, Krause, they were at the end of Krause's tenure. Um, the last couple, you know, really for this season, um, with with about ten games to go here, what is, what is your your take on what has been a exceedingly strange, I think it's safe to say, uh, bull season this year? Well, what's weird is that it is strange just because it's always strange, and the NBA is always filled with drama and twists and turns. <laughs> but if you if you take it take away all the you know the, the storylines their record is probably about exactly what everybody thought it would be. I mean, if I, I think I remember writing a story in preseason when Vegas set the over under at like 37 and a half wins. So, I mean, you know, they're, they're going to be right around where everyone kind of thought they'd be. They're, they're a inherently flawed team base, built uh, based on their construction. They don't, they don't have shooting in a, in a league that, you know, needs that. Um, they've now changed that team, obviously with the trade to the Thunder in February, and gotten even younger. They're trying to serve dual purposes in, you know, remaining competitive and mildly relevant, uh, chasing a low playoff seed while also developing six first or second year players in the roster. So if you strip away all the, you know, the weird things and the Rajon Rondo Instagram posts and the Dwayne Wade blasting his teammates, <laughs> and if you strip away all that stuff. It's, they're kind of what we all thought they would be, you know, but there's just been a lot of drama along the way, obviously. 
Yeah, no, and the, as you said, the, the, you know, in a league that's full of drama, the Bulls over the last several years have uh, have you know consistently led the league in that. If they haven't always led the league in uh, in wins, um, what you know, to, it kind of relates back to Jerry Krause, but people might not realize that the two men have run the Bulls since 1985. Uh, Krause did for 18 years, and now John Paxson has you know been president or you know has been in charge for you know I want to say this is his 14th year with the organization. Um, do you do you anticipate you know either at the top or or with Coach Fred Hoiberg? Do you anticipate the Rhinestorms making any changes, or do you think that given the fact that there is this you know kind of balance of trying to remain somewhat relevant and also you know trying to develop these younger players and rebuild at the same time, uh, is is there any chance that that they're going to deviate from what seems to be a pretty committed script at this point? No, I mean, I reported in February, uh, citing ownership-level sources, that management will be back, at, even with the caveat if they miss the playoffs for a second straight season. So that, that's, that's pretty much already been decided by ownership. And, and I'll, I'll detail the explanation that I had in the reporting of that story, is that in management's estimation, beyond all the factors of, you know, the well-known factors of the Reinsdorf loyalty and the, and the Reinsdorf belief in, in the status quo, they also view this organizationally as the first season post Derrick Rose. So this is like, they feel like they're, they're just on the front end of whatever you want to call it, rebuild, retool, soft rebuild. I don't know what you want to call it, but they, they view that, you know, this is an opportunity to give management a chance to construct a roster similar to what they did when they first got Derrick in, in 2008. So they view this as season one. So I, I, I expect that to be a pretty long leash you know, as far as the managerial level, as far as the coach, you know, Fred Hoiberg has three years remaining on his deal. And we all know that the Reinsdorf's historically do not like to pay coaches not to work for them. Most ownerships don't, obviously. Um, and they're, you know, they're three quarters of a season removed from paying two coaches at once for the first time in a long time when, you know, having to pay Tom Thibodeau for a year while they're paying Fred Hoiberg. So, I would certainly expect, and Gar Foreman is on record as saying that Fred Hoiberg will start the season next season as head coach. Obviously, we all know in this league, you never say never, and things can change. Sure. But I would certainly, I would certainly expect um, everybody to be back uh, at, the, at least at the start of next season. Yeah, no, that I, I was, I was really just teeing you up to give you a chance to to break down that story <laughs> from back in February, because no, because because like we had even talked right before then, I'd seen you, and there was there was a lot of conversations about you know, what was going to happen with Hoiberg and what was going to happen with the front office. Nobody's quite sure. And then, you know, you, you reported that story and it, it did really lay out that, you know, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, they, they do kind of see this as the beginning of the next era of the Bulls, which, you know, there is, you know, in another side of Krause, there is a lot of frustration with uh, within the fan base in Chicago about the current management structure. But uh, it does seem like, you know, in, in the same fashion that the Rhinosaurus has with him, they're going to get plenty of time to get a chance to, uh, to kind of reconstruct this team. And that, that leads back to the kind of the final thing to touch on, which is the, the status of, you know, the two real faces of the team right now, Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade. We'll start with Wade first. It's probably easier. He's out for the season with a, the elbow injury now. Um, what What is the expectation there for him next year with this $23 million player option he has for what I think will be his age 35 season? Is the expectation that he's going to stay, or, or is that still unclear? It's very unclear, but I will say that Dwayne has been incredibly uh, forthright and transparent in what's going to be the factors for his decision. He's been consistent throughout the season. It's going to be the team's fortunes, uh, money, and um, 
family. And look, everybody says family, but to me, you can kind of underline that, put an exclamation point on it, whatever you want, because, you know, Dwayne is at a different stage of his career. He just went through a move for the first time in his career. He's got kids settled in school here playing high school basketball. So I'm not saying that's why he's going to be back. I'm just saying that that's, that's, a, that's a more legitimate family reason than sometimes what you hear. Um, for sure. Dwayne Wade's not a guy yeah. chasing a ring. I mean, he's, his right. career, his legacy is secure no matter what he does. Right. So uh, let's get to the team fortunes because that to me is the most fascinating and fluid of the one because his option decision obviously is before July 1. Well, we all know that if the Bulls are going to pull the trigger on a Jimmy Butler trade, it's going to happen the week of the draft, so that's a week before his option decision is due. So right. that, will play, that will play a huge factor, obviously, in what Dwayne decides to do. And then, you know, he's been clear that money's important to him, and he's got obviously a very nice paycheck sitting there waiting for him if he wants it. Uh, I'd be very surprised personally if he's able to uh, match that salary on an annual basis, but maybe he could get a, you know, two – two-year, three-year deal with a one-year team option for more guaranteed money than $24 million. I have no idea. So um, it's going to be certainly a big story this summer. Uh, I would say the biggest factor that I'm going to be watching is how it's tied to Butler, which leads into your final question. Yeah, which, which of course, this goes to, you know, the status of Jimmy, you know, obviously become really, you know, kind of a, another remarkable story. A guy was picked 30th in the NBA draft as a, a JUCO guy. Uh, in Texas, goes to Marquette, the so 30th pick, doesn't really play a lot in the first year of his career. Um, just so you pick a four-year senior player who didn't play a ton as a rookie, you kind of wonder, you know, he's probably got a chance to be a decent role player. So now he, I think, is one of the 10 best players in the league and has been just an absolute monster for them. Um, but, and, and now he's also on a great contract, given the way the Starcast spiked. But that also leads to him potentially being a huge trade piece for the Bulls. There's been talks about him getting moved on more than one occasion, he's had some issues with Fred Hoiberg. Um, he's obviously a guy that, you know, pretty much any team in the league with assets would love to get their hands on. So from your standpoint, you mentioned the draft now just a minute ago. Um, you know, what do you think the chances are that the Bulls do, like, really blow this up? And, you know, if they can get a, a big, big-time big offer for him in June, they move on from him and, and get into the top of this draft. I mean – my sense is that uh, last June, when the talks with the Celtics were very serious before the draft, uh, there was still an organizational um, uh, there was still an organizational lack of consensus on whether or not to do a full rebuild. I kind of feel like if they got the right offer, there's more of a consensus to do a full rebuild. Uh, but they're not going to trade Jimmy just to do a rebuild. They, it's got to still be as close to equal values you can get for, you know, top 10, top 15 player in the league. So, um, you know, there are not a lot of teams that can satisfy that. I guess Denver would be one beyond the, uh, the, uh, Celt the obvious Celtics one. And, you know, the Celtics are probably going to have options. Uh, they may have the first overall pick in the draft. They may pursue Paul George trade. They may pursue Gordon Hayward if he becomes a free agent. So there's, there's just too many variables to give a definitive answer on that. But I do think that there's a little bit more alignment organizationally to pull the trigger on it if they get the right package. Whereas last June, I think they had the right package kind of in their sights, and there was still just too much division internally on pulling the trigger on a full rebuild. So final thing, just on a, on a percentage basis, like if you, if you had to guess, do you, do you think that, that Jimmy Butler's a bull next season or not? I think he's a bull just because I think it's going to be hard to, to, to get Pull the, the trigger. Right trade, trade, right. Yeah. Well, no, I think just, 
think it's gonna be hard to get the right trade package for him. I really do. Right now, I, I, the one thing I will say is, I mean, because and I've written this a couple of times, and it, you, it's it's intriguing to me because you say like he's on a value contract, and you're absolutely right. But let's also remember that he could be in line for a DPE designated player exception, and now you're committing you know north of two hundred million dollars to him when he's close to thirty years old. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because he's still obviously going to be a great player for the majority of that contract. I'm just saying that that's something that the Bulls, I, I guarantee you, are weighing internally, you know, as they as they face this decision. Yeah, no question. I mean, he he's got two more years after this, and then a player option. So if he if he ends up, you know, opting out of that final year and he qualifies for the for the exception, which to your point, he probably will. Um, if right. He's anywhere near the rate he's at now. You're talking five years, and at that point, probably somewhere north of $250 million maybe um, for a guy from, say, what, age 29 to 34? I mean, that's, right. that's a lot of money. Right. So a lot of, you know, that's why this league uh, keeps us all employed. There's always crazy storylines to consider, right? <laughs> there's, always, there's, always, there's always something going on. Do you have anything you want to plug before you bounce? You got anything coming up? I want to – I want to plug how amazing of a job you're doing as the NBA reporter for the Washington Post. Everyone <laughs> should read and follow this guy. That's not, uh, that, that, that was not what I was expecting, but that's uh, very kind of you to say. Well, you can, you can find all of Casey's outstanding work covering the Bulls in the Chicago Tribune and, on, and online on Twitter at KCJ Hoop, where, uh, you know, Grandpa Casey's uh, nickname came from him not understanding what the blue check mark was on Twitter back in the day. <laughs> Uh, one of the more memorable exchanges I've had on the beat so far. What is this blue check mark on here? Uh, but Casey, you're the best man. Uh, you did a really awesome job with all this cross stuff, and thanks for uh, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your week. I appreciate it. This was uh, far less painless than I thought it would be, and I appreciate you. <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks. All right, thank you again to Casey Johnson, uh, my very good friend, and, and frankly, I think the best beat writer in the nation covering. Uh, a daily beat on the NBA. He's just terrific. Um, does a great job with the Bulls. You should definitely follow him on Twitter. Uh, his, his Twitter handle is at KCJHoop. Um, great, great follow. Uh, really good dude and, and a great reporter. So so check his work out um, both on – go back and look at the Jerry Krause stuff and then go back and you know follow him moving forward on what should be a really interesting summer for the Bulls. Uh, as for me, you can you could find my work on the Washington Post website washingtonpost.com or in the newspaper. You'd find me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. You can find me on Facebook at Tim Bontemps NBA. Please give this podcast a five-star rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you can. The ratings and reviews really help. Um, so please, please do that for us if you could. Uh, please give Glenn Yoder and the Western States uh, a follow on the internet. Go find their music. They do the theme music for the podcast. Glenn's a digital editor at the Post. I've seen his band in person. They're really good. Uh, they're good dudes. A lot of people like the uh, like the music for the podcast. I've gotten a lot of comments on it, pretty much about as much as that as anything else I've ever done on it, which makes me really happy because I I, I kind of pushed Glenn to, to have his music on the podcast. I thought it was really cool to have a, a post connection. So so thank you to him and them for that. Um, and and again, one more time, uh, please give the Monday Morning Post up a subscribe a subscription. Give us a click and, and check it out. I really. I want to hear what you guys think. Again, email me at t or timbontemps at washpost.com. Let me know what you think. Uh, any suggestions on things to add, things to change. Just, you know, I really want to try to turn this into a big thing. So um, whatever people are interested in seeing in it, would love to hear some feedback on that. And to subscribe, again, wapo.st slash postupnewsletter. That's wapo.st slash postupnewsletter. 
Uh, but give that a look for me, and uh, hopefully you guys will all like that. Uh, one final thank you to Casey Johnson, my good friend, uh, for coming on today. Thank you to all of you, as always, for listening. And we're hopefully going to be back uh, at least once this week. Got a guest lined up, hopefully to work out. Um, may have a couple, but definitely, definitely one. So stay tuned for that, and we'll talk to you all soon.